Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 42 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is part one of a three-part case before They Walk Among Us concludes Season 3. You can now pre-order your copy of our new book, they Walk Among Us, available on Thursday, May 30th, 2019, in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. PC Michael West was hoping for a quiet night operating the switchboard for Chelmsford Police Station until he received a hurried call in the early hours of August 7, 1985. A young man on the other end of the line told the officer, You've got to help me. My father has just rung me and said, Please come over. Your sister has gone crazy and has got the gun. Then the line went dead. The caller explained that he had tried to ring his father back, but the line was engaged. 
it was told officers would be sent as soon as possible. PC West tried to call the property in which the disturbance had been reported and also found the phone line to be busy. Three uniformed officers from Whitton Police Station, Chris Buse, Stephen Mayle and Robin Saxby rushed to White House Farm, an 18th century property that stood on a 300-acre estate in the village of Tolshunt Darcy in Essex. They arrived at 3.48am. During the journey, they passed a Vauxhall Astra that arrived at the scene shortly after them. The driver was the man who had made the call from his home, located around three and a half miles away in the village of Goldhanger. He introduced himself as Jeremy Bamber and told the officers about the phone call with PC West. Jeremy informed the officers that his parents in their early 60s were in the house, along with their daughter and her twin sons. The 24-year-old said, My sister's a nutter. I think something terrible has happened. There are guns inside. Before proceeding any further, Jeremy was questioned why his father might call him instead of the emergency services. Jeremy explained that his father preferred to keep matters within the family and wasn't one to deal with organisations. He was also asked why he didn't call 999, choosing instead to call the local police station. Jeremy explained that it made no difference as the emergency services are being alerted either way and they would arrive at the scene just as quickly. Aware that the suspect might be armed with multiple weapons, the officers decided to alert the armed response unit. Jeremy told police that his sister was familiar with firearms as they had been out hunting together. He admitted that he had been at the property the previous evening and had left a semi-automatic rifle in the kitchen. He remembered placing it next to a box of ammunition. After police looked around the house, it was noted all of the doors and windows were closed, save for a window on the first floor that belonged to the main bedroom. Looking for some emotional support, Jeremy asked if he could contact his fiancée, Julie Mugford. Jeremy Bamber had met 21-year-old Julie two years earlier while she had been working in Colchester and they got engaged at the end of the previous year. Julie was now studying at Goldsmiths College at the University of London. After being told by Jeremy, there's something wrong at home, she quickly travelled from London to Essex. Julie was interviewed by police and described Jeremy as being disjointed and worried on the phone when they first spoke. By 4.30am, an operator for British Telecom checked the phone line in the farmhouse and said that one of the phones had been taken off the hook. There was only one telephone line in the house, but multiple phones. As the operator pressed their ear to the receiver, the only thing they heard cut through the silence in the house was loud barking. It was Crispy, the family dog. At 5am, officers from the tactical firearms group arrived. Unsure of the situation, as Jeremy's sister could very well be roaming around the house with a gun, they proceeded with caution. 
they asked Jeremy for a sketch of the house. Realising what might have occurred, the gravity of the situation suddenly dawned on Jeremy and he became visibly upset. He said to one of the officers, What if anything has happened in there? They are all the family I've got. It had been around four hours since the police had received the initial call about the shooting. After waiting for daylight and acting upon information from the British telecom operator who could hear no activity in the property, it was finally agreed that the armed response team would breach the house. Through a downstairs window, an officer could see what appeared to be the body of a woman in the kitchen. After gaining entry through the locked back door with a sledgehammer, Officers found a body, although not a woman. It turned out to be Jeremy's 61-year-old adoptive father, Ralph Neville Bamber, more commonly known as Neville. There had been signs of a brutal attack, with broken crockery and brown sugar covering the floor, along with what appeared to be spots of blood. A ceiling lampshade was destroyed, and the stools and chairs in the kitchen were upended. Dressed in pyjamas, Neville's body was found lying face down on top of an overturned chair near the foot of the fireplace. His head was resting on the coal bucket. He had been shot eight times, six to the head, once to the left shoulder, with a final bullet grazing the skin on his left elbow. He had also been assaulted with what was later believed to be the butt of a rifle. He had a broken nose black eyes, bruised cheeks, bruises to his left arm and injuries to his back. Some of the bullet wounds to his head may not have been fatal but could have left him unconscious. If he wasn't incapacitated, further gunshot wounds to his lip and jaw damaged his teeth and larynx and would have left him unable to speak before he passed away. Stained with blood, his watch would later be discovered on the floor along with a piece of the butt of a rifle. Next to his body were some spent 22 shells and the telephone was found off its receiver. This phone was usually used in the family's main bedroom but had been unplugged and moved downstairs into the kitchen. The phone that was usually used in the kitchen had been unplugged and was hidden under some magazines. After police made their way upstairs, They saw the body of Jeremy's adoptive mother, 61-year-old June, on the floor by the doorway of the main bedroom covered in blood. Wearing a nightdress, the local church warden had been shot seven times with wounds to the head that would have caused death almost instantly. She had also been shot in the neck, chest and one of her knees. The pattern of blood that coated her nightdress implied that she had not been shot while laying down would have been upright. The body of Jeremy's sister Sheila lay by his parents' bed with wounds to her neck. Like her mother, she too was dressed in nightwear and had bare feet. The 28-year-old had been shot twice in the throat at close range, once with the barrel touching her skin. Blood was running down her face in a vertical direction. Based on the staining over her nightdress and hemorrhaging inside her neck, she was in a sitting position when she received the wounds, 
it was confirmed that the first injury was not fatal and she may have been able to move around for a time before the second and deadly shot was fired. There were no injuries that indicated she had been in a struggle. It was apparent that after the second gunshot, she fell backwards. Resting on top of her body was a semi-automatic rifle pointing towards her injuries. A Bible that belonged to her mother sat propped up on the floor, leaning against Sheila's right arm, open at the pages that contained Psalms 51 through 55. An extract reads, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Saviour, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. It was noted by police her hands and feet appeared to be clean, with no damage to her manicured red fingernails. No blood on her nightdress belonged to any of the other victims, and it showed no signs of cartridge grease from the weapon. Before her body was removed, the scenes of crime officer, DC David Hammersley, placed plastic bags over her hands and feet to avoid contamination. In another room of the farmhouse, the bodies of Sheila's twin sons, Daniel and Nicholas, were found. The six-year-olds had both been shot in the head in what appeared to be quick succession. Daniel was still sucking his thumb. Officers accounted for all of the known firearms in the house, which had been stored in a cupboard on the ground floor. Just after 8am, Dr. Ian Craig arrived at the scene to certify the deaths. Based on her wounds, he determined that Sheila had killed her family and then turned the gun on herself. He believed the injuries were suggestive of having been self-inflicted. He presumed that the deaths had occurred late the previous night, however could not confirm an exact time. Once outside the property, the doctor witnessed Jeremy looking extremely upset before he vomited. The two men spoke about Sheila, and Jeremy explained that the previous evening the Bamba family had talked about her two children, and the topic of foster care came up. Jeremy told the doctor that he was worried that his sister might have been abusing the children. She was receiving treatment for mental health issues, she had recently divorced her husband, which only added to her already fragile mental state. A forensic photographer captured the tragic events with their focus firmly on the bodies and their immediate surroundings. The bodies were taken to the Chelmsford and Essex mortuary where the injuries were assessed. Wallpaper from the hallway to the kitchen door that was smeared with blood was removed. The blood group matched that of Neville Bamber. Bloodstained squares of carpet were cut from the main bedroom, with the blood group corresponding to June Bamber. The Anschutz Model 525 semi-automatic rifle used in the attack was German-made. It was in good working order following the shooting, albeit with damage to the stock. 
a broken piece of corresponding wood was found on the kitchen floor. It is a relatively lightweight firearm with little to no recoil and uses detachable magazines. When fired, it is not very loud, sounding almost like a hand clap. It could be used by someone with little or no firearms experience, but the accuracy of the shot would depend on the proximity to the target and the quality of the shooter's aim. The residue left after use would be far less compared to a handgun, in part due to the calibre and proximity of the finger pulling the trigger. This residue could be removed by washing the user's hands, though residue would eventually wear off within a few hours. The magazine the rifle used could hold a maximum of 10 bullets. With more than two dozen bullet casings found, this suggested the gun had to have been loaded at least twice. Testing on the magazine proved that as each bullet was loaded, it became progressively more difficult. A fingerprint from Sheila was discovered on the right side of the butt, and a print from Jeremy's right forefinger was lifted from the barrel of the rifle above the stock. At the time, this didn't seem suspicious, as he told officers that he had recently been handling the weapon. Three other fingerprints were also noted, however identification could not be made. Blood was splashed on the left side of the weapon and smeared on the barrel. The patterns indicated that the gun had been used to strike a victim who was already bleeding. While later testing proved the blood to be human, identification of a blood group was not possible. Attempts were made to collect swabs of any blood staining and understand how a culprit could have entered and exited the property. Detective Chief Inspector Thomas Jones, who led the initial investigation, was of the firm belief that Sheila carried out the murders. This influenced the direction of the investigation and the analysis of evidence at the crime scene. From the scene, a total of 25 bullet casings were recovered. All but one of the bullets had been fired at near point-blank range. The Anschutz Model 525 rifle fires 22 rounds, and although small, they are deadly. If you are on the receiving end, the damage can be catastrophic. The bullet would not travel through someone and come out the other side. Instead, on impact, it would move in any number of directions, causing internal damage throughout the body. When cataloguing all 25 bullet casings, it was theorised that Neville was initially injured upstairs in the main bedroom. He was shot four times before he fled. Another shot was fired on the stairs before the final three were made in the kitchen where he ultimately lost his life. This theory was consistent with the smears of blood found on wallpaper leading to the kitchen. Of the 13 cartridges found on the main bedroom floor, four came from the shots that had been fired at Neville. Seven accounted from the multiple shots to June and the remaining two related to Sheila. This left the eight found on the floor of the twins' bedroom. Based on evidence from a firearms expert, these injuries were made at close proximity to the victims. One possible grain of comfort came from the fact that the twins' deaths would have been instant. There were no signs of resistance, as they looked to have died in their sleep. 
June and Neville Bamba were described as leading members of their rural community, with most unaware of the turmoil brewing within the family. Friend and neighbour Anthony Peel was interviewed and spoke about Neville and the type of man he was. He was uh, a typical Essex farmer, jovial, kindly, generous, uh, a firm man, and I think that's typified by the fact that he was for many years uh, a magistrate uh, at Whitton, where he was chairman of the juvenile bench. A vicar for St Nicholas's Church, where June was a church warden, was quoted as saying, they were highly respected and very good folk. No one knows why this happened. It is a mystery. They seem to have no obvious problems. While the village was reeling from the tragedy, newspapers began to report that Sheila Caffell, her married name, was responsible for the shootings. Detective Chief Inspector Thomas Jones, who led the inquiry, believed that Sheila, a model who was often referred to as Bambi, took her own life after she had murdered her children, then her parents. Chief Inspector Terry Gibbons, who attended the scene, was interviewed. Having made necessary inquiries and checks with the aid of a support unit from headquarters, an entry was forced into the house, whereupon five persons were found deceased within the house, apparently all suffering from gunshot wounds. The case of the White House farm murders dominated the front pages of most major newspapers. Headlines at the time read, Top Model Massacre and Model Murders Five of Her Family. Sheila Bamba was divorced and was being treated for depression. She'd had a nervous breakdown two years ago, and there was even talk in the little village of Tolson to Darcy that the model had recently become involved with hard drugs. After killing her mother, father and two sons, Sheila Bamba went into her parents' bedroom and then shot herself. The police may never know what suddenly sent her berserk. Detectives hope to piece together more of the event that led to the tragedy when they talk to Jeremy Bamba later today. So far, he's been too upset to tell them more than the barest details of what he heard over the phone as his family were gunned down. Little of the shocking and horrific details of the crime were left out in the press, along with a slew of rumours about the family. Friend of the Bambas, Matty Bridgeland, was asked why it might have happened. I think June's religious thing may have got too much for her. And it may have been a, perhaps a, a jealousy over the children, I don't know. Sheila's ex-husband, Colin Caffell, had told police he could not face having to identify the bodies of his twin sons as he wanted to remember them as they were, two happy young boys. Instead, another relative viewed the bodies. Autopsies had been undertaken, however the results were still being analysed. It looked to be an open and shut case.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now, imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bolin Branch sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order with code BUTTERY. So head to B-O-L-L and branch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In a somewhat unexpected twist, on September 8th, 1985, Jeremy Bamber, the surviving member of the family, was arrested. That same day it was reported that the case into the White House farm murders was being reopened, as it might be possible evidence pointing to another culprit may have been overlooked. While it was believed that Sheila Caffell had shot her parents and twin sons before turning the gun on herself, some family members had raised concerns about the investigation. Assistant Chief Constable for Essex Police Peter Simpson was interviewed and said, as in all cases of this kind, we shall keep an open mind. Throughout the village of Tolshunt, Darcy, house-to-house inquiries were stepped up, on the off chance a local may have spotted something during the late evening or early morning of the shooting. Brett Collins, a friend of Jeremy Bamber's, had been taken in for questioning, although was not ultimately charged. He had been spending a great deal of time with Bamber after the killings, and the pair were also spending a great deal of Jeremy's newly acquired inheritance together too. After leaving Whitton Police Station, Collins spoke to a reporter. The police accused me of withholding vital evidence, he said. Questions were undoubtedly raised by locals and the media about Jeremy Bamber's arrest. He was held on remand for four days, and although he was undoubtedly quizzed about the murders, he was also being questioned concerning a burglary. Police believe that on March 25th he had broken into the offices of a caravan site in O.C. Bay, one and a half miles southwest of his home on Head Street in Goldhanger, Essex. When police arrived, they found a broken window, 
papers scattered across the room, and £980 was missing. Stranger still, the caravan site was owned by Jeremy's family, and a key had been used to gain access to the office and safe. Bamber appeared before a court in Chelmsford and was released on unconditional bail. A month earlier, some members of the wider Bamber family did not believe that Sheila Caffell could murder her parents and her twin sons. The relatives included June Bamber's sister Pamela Bowflower, Pamela's husband Robert and their two children, David Bowflower and Christine Ann Eaton, otherwise known as Anne. A few days after the shooting on August 10th, Basil Cock, the family accountant and executor of the estate, travelled to White House Farm along with the Bowflowers so they could collect any valuable items for safekeeping. The brother and sister were certain that Sheila was not responsible, so wanted to see the scene for themselves. As they looked for clues that could point to someone else being involved, David Bowflower would find something that would turn the investigation on its head. While examining the contents of the gun cupboard in the downstairs office, he found some cardboard boxes which contained ammunition, a dartboard, a telescopic sight and a silencer. Everyone present, including the executor of the estate, witnessed the discovery. The silencer was taken to Anne Eaton's home for safekeeping, and that evening it was examined further by the family. It was noted that it was sticky, part of its surface had been damaged, and fragments of red paint were present on the nozzle. Jeremy Bamber had been seen with the rifle used in the shootings a week before the incident by his cousin, Anthony Pargeter. Before using it for target practice, Jeremy had removed the silencer. The police were informed about the discovery of the silencer and it was passed to Detective Sergeant Stan Jones on August 12th. He had also witnessed firsthand the violence at the scene and was dubious of Sheila's involvement. While examining the silencer further, Detective Sergeant Jones noticed a single grey hair around an inch in length that had attached itself to the device. However, after it was sent to the FSS, the Forensic Science Service, the hair had disappeared. Traces of human blood were found on the outside of the silencer, but it could not be determined which blood group they belonged to, making identification difficult. This was before DNA analysis was possible. The red paint found on the device was consistent with paint that covered the mantelpiece in the kitchen. A few days after Jeremy Bamber was released on bail in connection with the burglary at the caravan site, information about the discovery of the silencer was announced by the Assistant Chief Constable of Essex Police. It was reported that those working on the investigation were still awaiting reports which would identify if the killer was in fact Sheila Caffell. A funeral for Neville, 
June and Sheila took place on August 16th and 230 mourners paid their respects. Jeremy was photographed in tears as the coffins were taken into the church. His fiancée Julie escorted him arm in arm. A sea of photographers greeted the mourners as they left. The bodies of Neville, June and Sheila were then sent to Colchester Crematorium. The twins were buried at Highgate Cemetery with Sheila's ashes scattered at the graveside. It had been six weeks since the shooting and the press were now asking questions. Criticism of the investigation was mounting as evidence had reportedly been destroyed. The bodies of the victims were cremated before a complete investigation could be undertaken and more and more rumours began to circulate about members of the family. While it was initially suggested Sheila carried out the killings due to a failed marriage and mental health issues, for which she had been undergoing treatment, there were now rumours she was somehow involved in drug smuggling. If that wasn't enough, the tabloids reported that she was using drugs, cocaine and methadone used to treat heroin addiction. It was also being alleged in the press that Sheila's frequent drug use, confirmed by friends of hers in London, had left her with a considerable debt which may have been a contributing factor to her uneven mental state. Assistant Chief Constable with the Essex Police Peter Simpson was interviewed, and despite the persistent rumours, he could find no evidence of Sheila being involved in drug smuggling or owing anyone any money. Simpson said he would not speculate on such matters, however confirmed that a parallel investigation into some of the drug contacts that Sheila had made was underway. The assistant chief constable went on to explain that although some of the furnishings in the house, along with beds and carpet, had been burnt, he insisted that no items of forensic value had been destroyed. He also stated that the cremation of the victims' bodies went ahead as the investigation did not want to cause additional distress to the family. A full pathologist report was expected in the coming weeks. Jeremy Bamber's arrest for burglary also did not help his cause as he was continually fielding accusations that he was somehow involved. He faced a number of difficult questions. Why would his father not have called 999 even if he found it uncomfortable, especially when it related to the direct safety of his family? Why would he have gone downstairs to make the call and left his wife unattended upstairs with an unstable daughter armed with a gun? And why would he call Jeremy in the first place, as he was hardly on the best of terms with his sister, and it was unlikely he would be able to ease the rising tension in the house? Also, when Bamba called his father back after getting cut off, he claimed the line was engaged, but it would have been more likely that his telephone line would still be connected to the farmhouse, so how did he call the police? If it was not him, it might have been possible that his father had called someone else, though that person had not yet come forward. It did not help that Jeremy had travelled abroad to Amsterdam with a friend Brett Collins, and while on bail, the pair were now going on holiday to Saint-Tropez on the French Riviera. 
They both appeared to be enjoying themselves a little too much, and their behaviour was raising questions, especially after such a horrific event. Jeremy had also been selling some of the family's belongings. He would later defend this choice by claiming he needed the funds to cover the impending inheritance tax. And to make matters worse, the Sun newspaper was alleging that he was trying to benefit from the murder of his family when he contacted them to sell his life story, even offering explicit pictures of his recently deceased sister for a substantial fee. Due to the amount of speculation from both locals and the media, it was impossible to unravel where the truth began and the rumours ended. It had been 53 days since the bodies had been found at the sprawling grounds of White House Farm. On Sunday, September 29, 1985, Police made an arrest at the HM Customs and Excise car hall in Dover and someone was finally charged with the murder of the Bamba family. It was Jeremy, brother to Sheila, son to June and Neville and uncle to twins Daniel and Nicholas. He appeared before Chelmsford magistrates the following day. Reporting restrictions were in place, however it was confirmed Jeremy made an application for bail this was denied. While Jeremy was awaiting trial, two officers and a forensic scientist visited the farmhouse and noticed that the window frame and catch in the downstairs shower room showed signs of damage. A rusty hacksaw was discovered in the weeds outside and markings on its teeth were consistent with damage to the brass catch. Bamber would admit that he did enter through that window, but it was on the 15th or 16th of September after the murders. Following his arrest and release on bail for the theft at the OC caravan site, Jeremy had to retrieve some documents from the farmhouse, but as he did not have a key, he chose to break in instead. His claim was not checked up on until years later. During that period in September, he was in London, unwittingly under police surveillance, which left his story very much in doubt. Strenuously denying all the charges against him, Jeremy Bamber had been granted legal aid and appointed the services of a local solicitor Bruce Bowler. However, towards the end of October 1985, unhappy with Bowler's firm's performance, Bamber applied to remove his current counsel and employ the services of Sir David Napley, an eminent solicitor from London who had worked on several high-profile suspected miscarriages of justice. Bruce Bowler admitted to the press that there was a lack of rapport between his firm and his client, who was facing some severe charges. He stated that Bamber wanted a firm with a well-known reputation. While Bamber believed it was his right to select his own counsel, his application was refused by Molden magistrates on the grounds of cost, and he was told, It's not your right. We can assign you a solicitor if we wish. 
the London solicitor would be an additional expense when local people are available. A decision like this was almost unheard of. While on the face of it, Sir David Napley's fees did seem high on some of his more complex cases, he explained that this was due to a complete misunderstanding and lack of knowledge of the resources required and what was ultimately included in his firm's bills, i.e. travel and accommodation. A week later, despite the concern of the escalating cost from the chairman of Maldon Magistrates, Jeremy was granted leave to hire Napley, but the solicitor was unable to accept a legal aid case, so his colleagues Geoffrey Rivlin and Edmund Lawson were employed. Much fanfare was made in the media, condemning the decision that a man being accused of five murders was being granted legal aid to employ one of Britain's most expensive solicitors, despite Napley never appearing at the trial on Jeremy Bamber's behalf. Many years later, due to his experience and interest in the topic of miscarriages of justice, Napley often spoke about the need for an independent body to assess troublesome cases. Some might say his work paved the way for the Criminal Cases Review Commission, set up in the 90s to investigate alleged miscarriages of justice. The following year, Bamber's legal team made an application to the High Court, requesting that the trial be moved out of Essex to ensure a fair hearing, though this application was denied. A post-mortem had been completed on Sheila Caffell. From the evidence available at the time, the pathologist could not confirm if she had been murdered. His report stated, One cannot say with any degree of certainty whether the injuries were produced by another party. Cannabis was found in her system, consumed some days before the attack, along with haloperidol, an antipsychotic medication that had to be administered through injection. After the plastic bags were removed from her hands, swabs were taken along with one from her forehead. While low levels of lead were detected, this was consistent with someone handling day-to-day items around a farm. The pathologist noted Sheila's hands appeared to be free from any dirt and debris. Due to the number of casings found, 25 in all, the firearm magazine which held 10 bullets would need to be loaded at least twice. Scientists conducted laboratory testing, loading the magazine with rounds of ammunition to gather the average trace amounts of lead that would be left on someone's bare hands. This was significantly higher than the amount found on Sheila's. Her well-manicured nails showed no signs of damage, and this was a confusing find for someone who was alleged to have committed the killings. After further testing, it was discovered the magazine used in the shooting became progressively harder to load, with the tenth and final bullet incredibly difficult to add into the magazine. This was another perplexing discovery, as the pathologist would not expect to find a shooter who had loaded a troublesome magazine several times, with undamaged long well-groomed fingernails. The pathologist's report stated that Sheila's feet, which had been bare when she was found, 
were free from bloodstains and there were no signs of the brown sugar that had coated the floor of the kitchen. The Bible found next to Sheila's body was examined for fingerprints. Most of them belonged to June, apart from one that appeared to belong to a small child, but a full match could not be made. The trial into the murders at White House Farm was scheduled to take place at Chelmsford Crown Court during the start of October 1986, and Jeremy Bamber would be pleading not guilty. This is the end of episode 42. To hear more on Jeremy Bamber's trial, please tune in next time. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters, as without their donations this podcast would not be possible. An additional thank you goes out to Chuck Walters for his assistance while researching this episode. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.